Welcome back to Reading Through the New Testament. This is Pastor Spencer. Thanks for being with us. We are here in week 33, week 33, um, August 14th through August 20th. We are here reading 2 Corinthians chapter 12 through Galatians 13, through Galatians 13, good night. Galatians 3, sorry about that. 2 Corinthians 12 through Galatians 13. Three. So we're ending Second Corinthians, beginning Galatians. Before we go into the last part of Second Corinthians, I want to give you a little bit of background information, real quick, to the Book of Galatians before we go into it, um, so that way you can understand and have some some basic facts just about the Book of Galatians. Um, a very important book, obviously, in the the Scriptures. A very uh, one of the one of the more well-known books of the Bible, the book of Galatians is. It's, of course, written by Paul, probably around 48 or 49 AD. And so it's probably the first letter of Paul's that we have in the New Testament. Very, very significant, right? This is probably the first letter that we have that Paul wrote in the New Testament. Not saying he didn't write letters before that, but this is the first one we have in the scriptures. So it's a very important letter. It's very fascinating. That's the number one that we have in the Bible. Um, he probably wrote it maybe maybe in Antioch, maybe in Jerusalem, or maybe somewhere in between there. Um, and he's writing it to the churches in South Galatia because Paul had visited there, his first missionary journey. He had visited the churches there. And so now he's writing a letter to these churches um, who were being influenced by false teachers um, who were going around, and they were really spreading the Judaizing heresy, uh, which was that in order to be made right with God, it's good to believe in Jesus Christ, you need that, but you also need to obey the law. You need to do something else in order to be accepted in God's sight. So there's something more you need to do. You yourself, you need to do some kind of work out of your own abilities or maybe even the abilities that God gives you, but you need to do it in order to be accepted with God and uh, given eternal life. So Paul here is responding to this teaching, and he is going to oppose them and defend the, the truth of the doctrine of justification on account of Christ alone by grace alone, received through faith alone. Uh, one New Testament um, introductory book where I'm getting these facts from, by the way, I can't claim to have done all this by myself. But anyway, he, they say this, the early church wrote more commentaries on Galatians than any other New Testament book. The letter was a favorite of the Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, who described it as dear to him as his own precious wife and called it my own epistle to which I have plighted my troth. In other words, pledged my truthfulness, my Katie von Bora. His wife's name was, was, was uh, Katie von Bora. Um, and so, He's, what he's saying is, is uh, basically Luther has married himself to this letter. Uh, just as he married his wife, he has married himself to the book of Galatians. And he has one of his most famous works um, still is his, his commentary on the book of Galatians. Um, actually, the famous writer John Bunyan, who wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress, you might remember, he had high praise of 
Luther's commentary on Galatians. I think he actually said, apart from the Bible, that book is the best thing. That's my favorite thing or something like that. He very highly valued Luther's commentary on Galatians. And it's, it's kind of one of those, uh, standard great works, uh, from, from the, uh, reformation, uh, and of, uh, Luther's, Luther's, uh, works. So it's a very significant letter that we're going to read, uh, as we're going to go through the, the letter of, of Galatians to the Galatians. So before we get to that though, let's now step and we're going to finish up one reading from, uh, from, uh, Matthew Henry again, from second Corinthians, um, as Paul comes to a conclusion, his letter in Second Corinthians again. Um, so let's let's turn our attention now back to Second Corinthians. Uh, Paul is going to talk about his uh, visions that he's seen, but also the thorn in his flesh, and he's going to call this church back one last time to examine themselves in the faith, um, and call, reminds them of the grace of Christ. So he says this in verse 1 of chapter 12, 2 Corinthians, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. He talks about himself, right? He's talking about himself caught up in the third heaven. And then later on he says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Matthew Henry has this to say, Uh, about this uh, section of scripture. He says, the apostle gives an account of the methods God took to keep him humble and to prevent his being lifted up above measure. And this he speaks of to balance the account that was given before of the visions and revelations he had had. First of all, the apostle was pained with a thorn in the flesh and buffeted with a messenger of Satan. Secondly, the, the design of this was to keep the apostle humble, lest he should be exalted above measure. Third, the apostle prayed earnestly, uh, or no, actually, maybe, hang on, let me look here. I'm trying to see here. What did I do here? My reading here. Well, I'll keep reading and we'll see what happens here. The apostle prayed earnestly to God for the removal of this sore grievance. Note, prayer is a salve for every sore, a remedy for every malady. And when we are afflicted with thorns in the flesh, we should give ourselves to prayer. Therefore, we are sometimes tempted that we may learn to pray. That's, a, that's an interesting thought. Sometimes God allows us to be tempted so that we can learn to pray to him, so that we can be driven to his throne to, to depend upon him. Matthew Henry says this, the apostle besought the Lord thrice that it might not depart from him. Note, though afflictions are sent for our spiritual benefit, yet we may pray to God for the removal of them. We ought indeed to desire also that the, that they may reach the end for which they are designed. So he says it's okay to pray um, like Paul did, that our afflictions be removed, but we should also ask and, and want that whatever the purpose is that God had for those would be accomplished as well. And sometimes that latter part we don't want, <laughs> but um, God is using even the sufferings to drive us. And maybe it simply is just to get us to pray. Maybe that's what it is. God is letting us suffer simply so that we will pray to him and acknowledge our dependence and realize our dependence upon him 
and to go to him in prayer, to realize his goodness and his willingness to listen to us and to our prayers. Maybe that's why we're afflicted. Um, but whatever it is, we should always be driven to prayer um, as a salve for this a sword to help us. He also says this, we have an account of the answer given to the apostles' prayer, that although the trouble was not removed, yet an equivalent should be granted. My grace is sufficient for thee. Note one, though God accepts the prayer of faith, yet he does not always answer it in the letter, as he sometimes grants in wrath, so he sometimes denies in love. That's a great line, isn't it? Sometimes he grants in wrath. He gives something in, uh, for the purpose of him, you know, punishing people. But sometimes he denies us our prayers because he loves us. And here, he denied Paul because he loved him and he wanted him to know, my grace is sufficient for you. Secondly, when God does not remove our troubles and temptations, yet if he gives us grace sufficient for us, we have no reason to complain, nor to say that he deals ill, Ill by us. It is a great comfort to us, whatever thorns in the flesh we are pained with, that God's grace is sufficient for us. Grace signifies two things. One, the goodwill of God towards us. And this is enough to enlighten and enliven us. Sufficient to strengthen and comfort us, to support our souls and cheer up our spirits in all afflictions and distresses. Secondly, the good work of God in us. The grace we receive from the fullness that is in Christ our head. And from him there shall be communicated that which is suitable and seasonable and sufficient for his members. Christ Jesus understands our case and knows our need and will proportion the remedy to our malady and not only strengthen us, but glorify himself. His strength is made perfect in weakness. That's a great reminder as the last reading for Second Corinthians That's what it's about, isn't it? Paul is highlighting that in our weakness, God is glorified and that actually God uses the sufferings of this life for our good. And sometimes he does remove them, sometimes he doesn't. But either way, he is using them to change us into the image of his son and that we will seek him in prayer and that his name and power is glorified through our weakness. That is what God is after. And that's what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul. So, as we wrap up then uh, chapter 13 as well from 2 Corinthians, we turn the page and we come to the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians. And Paul opens up his epistle to the Galatians, uh, opens up, you know, Paul an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Um, And then he opens up and And says this right away, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed accursed. Now, as we go through Galatians here, uh, this week and next week, I want to use, um, I want to use a guy named, uh, to listen with us, a guy named Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon, you may have heard of him. There's a good chance you haven't, um, but he was an old English uh, pastor, uh, actually, I think Church of England, 
but he's got um, quite the works. Uh, I'm assuming it's his sermons and such upon all the texts, and he's got um, all sorts of texts, maybe Old Testament and New Testament anyway, but he's um, got some great stuff, a very solid writer to read, if you're ever interested, Charles Simeon. Um, and here he has a, a, a section, he has a thing on Galatians 1, 8 through 9, and it's called The Importance of the Doctrine of Justification by Faith Alone. And, and so he's highlighting what it, why is this important? And he's pulling this obviously from Galatians, right? Uh, chapter one, eight and nine. And he is now going to give the overall argument that Paul is making, um, in this letter, uh, to the Galatians. And I think it, it, it should help us kind of get an idea of what Paul's arguing for. Cause remember Paul here is arguing that, um, salvation is, is by grace alone, through faith alone. And it's always been that way. And uh, those who are coming in, he, he's talk, he gives examples from his background, how he received this gospel, how even in the past, circumcision was not required for people to join the church in the New Testament. And then he also uh, even opposed Peter, he says. So he's arguing against adding works to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Charles Simeon here has a helpful thing to help us give an overview of Paul's argument, and I hope it will make sense. Um, and and Simeon's pretty easy to read, actually. I, I think he's I think he's pretty pretty straightforward. Um, so hopefully you'll enjoy uh, this. And um, yeah, you can you can look him up. I'm sure his stuff would probably be available online if you're ever interested. Charles Simeon. He says this here. Let us notice his train of argument, especially in that part of the epistle which accords with a similar statement in the epistle to the Romans. He observes that Abraham was justified by faith and that we become partakers of his benefits by faith also, that the law, instead of justifying, curses and condemns us, that the prophets asserted justification by faith in direct opposition to justification by the works of the law, and that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, not that we might afterwards be justified by the law, but that we might enjoy his blessings through faith. The apostle then goes on to illustrate and confirm this by the covenant which was made with Abraham. In this covenant, God gave to Abraham and to his believing posterity the inheritance of eternal life. 430 years after, he gave the law to Moses and made another covenant with the Jews respecting their possession of the earthly Canaan. This latter covenant, therefore, you perceived, you perceive was made between two parties, between different parties, the former being between God and Abraham, including all the believing seed of Abraham, whether they were circumcised or not, and the other between God and the Jewish nation only. Consequently, as a man's covenant cannot be annulled unless both parties consent, so the covenant which God made with the Jews cannot supersede that which, had, which he had so long before made with Abraham and his believing seed because the latter party were not present at the making of it, nor had they ever consented to annul the covenant which had been made with them. If it be asked, why then was the law given? We answer, not to supersede the covenant which had been before confirmed of God in Christ, but to show men their need of that better covenant, and to serve as a schoolmaster to bring them unto Christ, that they might be justified by faith." Now compare this with the whole train of argument in the first five chapters to the Romans, and the coincidence will establish the point at once. The apostle there shows our condemnation by the law and the consequent impossibility of ever being justified by it. 
From thence he shows the necessity of seeking justification by faith in Christ, more especially because that way of justification and that alone would exclude boasting. He then proceeds to point this to establish his point by the examples of Abraham and David, both of whom sought justification by faith only. And he argues from thence that if works compose any part of our justifying righteousness, our reward will not be of grace, but of debt, and heaven will be not a gift bestowed, but a compensation that we have earned. And consequently, that we must not work in order to obtain righteousness, but believe on him who justifieth the ungodly. Mark well, not the godly, but the ungodly. If it be said that another apostle represents Abraham as justified by his works, St. Paul proves to demonstration that St. James cannot speak of Abraham's justification before God, but only of the justification or manifestation of his faith as true and genuine. For that Abraham was justified while yet he was in uncircumcision, which was not only before he offered Isaac upon the altar, but long before Isaac was born. It is needless to prosecute any further the apostle's statement. It will be sufficient just to mention his conclusion from it, which is, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. So Charles Simeon here is laying out the overall argument for what Paul believes, which is this, because people were saying, listen, that's why God gave the law in the Old Testament. He gave us Moses's law so that we could learn how we could become acceptable to God. And Paul's entire argument is, no, 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 no. Don't you know? Haven't you read the Bible? God made a covenant with Abraham long before 430 years and before Mount Sinai happened. And so with Abraham, what do we read? That Abraham was justified, accepted, made right with God only by believing the promises of God. And that covenant was good for him and for all of his believing offspring who would come after him, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Now, Paul will say later on, no, the law came after that. Why? Why did God make that Mosaic covenant? Not to, not so that they could now think, oh, we're, we're now going to be doing stuff in order to be acceptable by God. But God, Paul's going to argue the reason why that law was given was to show them their need for that gospel that God proclaimed to Abraham. So instead of trying to show them a way to be saved by the law, it was to show them that the law was to given to show them they needed to be saved and the law could not save them. So they needed to be saved the way Abraham was back then and the promise to Christ to come. That was the whole point. And so that's what Paul is arguing here. That's what Charles Simeon is trying to say. And that's actually what Paul's basic argument here is in Galatians, is arguing for the, the priority of the God, God's covenant with Abraham um, and, and what that means for us. Charles Simeon then highlights the perversions uh, that 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 uh, Paul is, is opposing, right? Because there were people now who had come in and had perverted this, this message. And this is what they were saying. Uh, Simeon says this, what was it he complained of in the conduct of the Galatians? It was this, that they added the observance of the Mosaic ritual to the duties enjoined by the gospel, hoping thereby to render themselves more acceptable to God. And in what manner does he complain of this? He calls it an introducing of another gospel, which yet was not another, for it was a mongrel religion, neither law nor gospel or in other words, a perversion or rejection of the true gospel. Now, what ground had he for such heavy accusations if he himself preached salvation, whether in whole or in part by the works of the law? 
On this supposition, the more works they did, the more certain they would be to obtain justification. Supposing the Mosaic ritual to be abrogated, there still was no harm in observing days and months and years, and all that could, he could properly say to them on the occasion was that they were giving themselves needless trouble. He must have commended them for their zeal in doing these works and only told them that now there was no occasion for these observances. But if he preached justification by faith without the works of the law and saw that they were performing these works in order to secure their justification, then he might well say, I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Again, we read of heavy complaints against Peter. What had Peter done? He had conversed familiarly with the Gentile converts and lived for a season as they did without any regard to the Mosaic ritual. But when some Judaizing converts came from Jerusalem, he was afraid of offending their prejudices, and therefore he forsook the Gentile converts and lived with the others in the observance of all the Jewish rites and ceremonies. By this conduct, he not only sanctioned the erroneous idea that the Mosaic rites were still obligatory on the Jewish Christians, but that it was necessary even for the Gentile Christians to conform to them. Now this, in any view of St. Paul's doctrine, was highly blameworthy because it was imposing a needless yoke upon the neck of the Gentiles. But this was all, and supposing that Paul had preached justification by works, this was all that he could properly lay to the charge of Peter. But supposing, as we have shown, that the gospel which Paul preached held forth justification by faith alone, then there was abundant reason for rebuking Peter in the presence of the whole church and accusing him of subverting the foundations of the gospel and declaring that, so far as he prevailed, he frustrated the grace of God and made the death of Christ to be in vain. So that's the introduction that Charles Simeon gives us there in those verses as we think about what is Paul tackling. He's tackling, is Jesus enough and is the covenant with Abraham that God made long ago to Abraham and to the believing seed, is faith the way in to acceptance with God? Or does the Mosaic law actually, is the Mosaic law showing us that we can be acceptable with God, more acceptable the more we obey it? Um, That is what Paul is tackling. That's what he's going after. And uh, so we'll see Paul arguing ultimately that Jews and Gentiles are both saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Well, next we turn our attention after Paul. He's going to talk about his past history, his receiving of the gospel, his opposition to Peter. Well, then later on in the latter part of chapter two, he says this, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives with me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Charles Simeon says this about verse 20. Here he says this, the gospel is for the most part plain and simple. Yet are there some things in it which seem dark and contradictory. In one place, St. Paul brings forth a long list of paradoxes, which to a superficial reader would appear absurd in the extreme. But in all the sacred records, there is not one so difficult of solution as that in our text. The apostle is speaking on the subject of justification by faith alone, without the works of the law, and he mentions that he had publicly reproved Peter for sanctioning by his example the idea that the observation of the law was still necessary. 
He says that the law itself sufficiently showed us the necessity of abandoning all hopes from that and of seeking justification by faith in Christ alone. And then adds that in consequence of what Christ had done and suffered to deliver us from the law as a covenant of works, he considered himself as one dead to the law and has having all his life and all his hopes in Christ alone. This is the plain import of the passage as divested of its paradoxical appearance. But as the paradox, when explained, will be very instructive, we shall enter into it fuller consideration and show. And what he's going to show us, um, we'll, we'll kind of summarize here underneath some of these things, but he's going to show, first of all, in what respect the Christian is dead, because Paul says it's no longer I who live, right? Uh, I have been crucified with Christ, he says. So he's going to talk about in what respect the Christian is dead and in what manner he lives. First of all, in what respect the Christian is dead. Uh, Simeon says this, to understand in what sense the apostle was crucified with Christ, we must particularly attend to the great ends for which Christ was crucified. Now Christ was crucified in the first place in order to satisfy all the demands of the law. But Christ had a further end in submitting to crucifixion, namely to destroy sin and by expiating its guilt forever to annul its power. Now, when St. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, we must understand that there was something in his experience analogous to the crucifixion of Christ, or in other words, that as Christ died a violent death to cancel the obligations of the law as a covenant and to destroy sin, so the apostle, by a holy violence upon himself, died to the law as a covenant and to sin as the most hateful of all evils. He died to the law. Once all his hopes were founded on his obedience to the moral law, and he felt in his conscience a dread of God's wrath on account of his transgressions of its precepts. But now he abandons all his self-righteous hopes and dismisses all his slavish fears because he finds a better, yea, an assured ground of hope in Christ's obedience unto death. But he's also died not simply to the law, but he's also died to sin. The believer, previous to his conversion, Simeon writes, had no wish beyond the things of time and sense. He walked according to the course of this world, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. He, might poss- he possibly might be pure from gross acts of sin, but all his actions, of whatever kind they were, sprang from self and terminated in self. Self-seeking and self-pleasing constituted the sum total of his life. He possessed no higher principle than self, The stream, therefore, could rise no higher than the fountainhead. But now he feels the influence of nobler principles and determines to live no longer to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. The time past suffices to have wrought his own will, and henceforth he desires to have not only every action, but every thought brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. He now crucifies the flesh with the affections and lusts. Nevertheless, the Christian lives, and to show the truth of the paradox, we proceed to state. So real quick, what Simeon is highlighting here, when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and how he's died, he's saying, how did Paul die? Well, he died to the law in the sense in which he died to the law as a means to buy eternal life. He died to the law in the sense that he's no longer going to use the law to try to make himself acceptable in God's sight, to earn God's favor. And he's also died to sin so he's died to um, the flesh and all of its lusts. He is, he is dead, self-seeking and self-pleasing. He's done with it. 
He's died to the law. He's died to sin. But now he lives. What does he live to? And that's what Simeon's going to talk about in the second half, because Paul will say, it's no longer I who it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so Simeon says, in what manner he lives? He says this, that he has the same life as the unregenerate is obvious enough, but he has also a life different from theirs. And his whole manner of life is different from theirs. He lives a new life in and through Christ. He lives, and he points he lives, by the influence of his spirit, doesn't he? Um, Paul lives by the influence of the spirit of God. But secondly, he lives in dependence on his sacrifice. Simeon writes, the atonement of Christ is the one ground of all the Christian's hopes. If he look for reconciliation with God, it is through the blood of the Redeemer's cross. If for peace, for strength, for any blessing whatsoever, he has no other plea than this. My Lord and Savior has bought it for me with his blood. He views everything treasured up for him in Christ, and to him he goes in order to receive out of his fullness whatsoever his necessities require. His whole life is a life of faith on the Son of God. He never, he never goes to God but in and through Christ. He never expects any blessing to flow down upon him but for the sake of Christ and through him as the immediate channel of conveyance. The very life which he receives from Christ he considers as purchased for him by Christ's obedience unto death. And on that very ground he presumes to make Christ his wisdom, his righteousness, his sanctification, and his complete redemption. So he lives by the influence of the Spirit. He lives in dependence on his sacrifice. And he lives under a sense of love is what uh, Simeon has there. So that's a helpful passage because Paul there is saying, listen, this is if you have embraced Christ by faith, this is what it looks like to be someone in Christ. You have died to the law, you've died to sin, and now you live by the power of the Spirit. You live in dependence upon the atonement of Jesus Christ alone, and you also live under a sense of love. That's what it is to be a believer. He says, it's no, uh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, Paul then continues in Galatians chapter 3 and tells them, you know, um, did you uh, le- did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith, right? And he goes and eventually talks about Abraham. He says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And he argues there that there's a distinction between the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. Paul here is arguing that our salvation is founded upon the covenant made with Abraham. Abraham was given salvation by a promise just as we are. And he so he, he argues that the gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand. Um, he, he argues that the law came about and brought about a curse, but Jesus Christ came to redeem us from the curse of that law. So we're no longer under the Mosaic law because the Mosaic law was given to show us the need of a Savior. And then eventually, in, in, uh, he goes on in verse 19, he has this, this great question that people have been asking for a long, long, long time. Why then the law? And Paul writes, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Eventually, he says, is, then, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. 
So Charles Simeon here, uh, Galatians 3, 21 through 26, has a section here now called the true use of the law. And he writes this. The true nature and intent of the moral law is by no means generally understood. And if the question put by the apostle into the mouth of an objector, wherefore then serveth the law, were addressed to the great mass even of considerate Christians, very few among them would know what answer to return to it. Hence it is that such opposition is everywhere made to the free offers of the gospel. We have continually the very same contest to maintain against the generality of Christians as the apostle had against the Jews. The apostle preached that the Messiah, the seed in whom all the nations of the earth were to be blessed, was come, and that all were now to be justified by faith in him, precisely as Abraham had been 2,000 years before. The Jews maintained that this could not be the true way of salvation, for that God had given a law to Moses, and that law was a perpetual obligation. And if we were now to be justified by faith alone, the law would be made void, and had in reality been given to no purpose. To this the apostle answers that the law, which was given to the Jews alone, could not invalidate the promise which had many ages before been given to Abraham and all his believing seed, whether among the circumcised Jews or the uncircumcised Gentiles, and that there was no such opposition between the two as the Jews imagined. The law being in fact designed to introduce the gospel with more effect and to endear it to all, when it should come to be more fully revealed. This was the state of the question between the apostle and his opponents, to whom a more to whom a complete answer is given in the words before us. The question simply was, is there re- any real opposition between the law as given to Moses and the promises as given to Abraham? No, says the apostle. There is a subserviency of the one to the other. And both the one and the other proclaim to us, in fact, the same salvation. Salvation by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and by faith of the lo- and by faith alone. So what he's arguing here is this, right? Paul's great thing he's trying to argue for is the fact that the law is not opposing the promises. It's not as if God is uh, schizophrenic and saying, all right, with Abraham, you can be saved by grace alone, but now with the law, not anymore. You have to be, you have to earn your salvation. Paul's saying, no, that's not what God was doing either. He wasn't confusing things, but God saved Abraham and all of his believing seed by faith. And that's us, by the way, we're the believing seed. And then those, the law was given to convict us, to show us our need for that salvation. But that law only lasted for a temporary time. It was a temporary and limited time that the Mosaic Covenant was in place. And now it is removed because the promise has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the basic outline here that that, that he gives us, Simeon gives us, is the use of the law was, first of all, to prepare men for the gospel but secondly, to shut men up to the gospels. They can't go anywhere. They're imprisoned. And the only way to be set free is through the gospel of Christ. And then he talks about the benefits of the gospel. He says, first of all, we are liberated from the law, but secondly, we are brought into possession of all spiritual and eternal blessings. And this is the last section I want to read from Charles Simeon uh, today. He says this, we are justified by faith. We are justified freely from all things, which we could not be justified by the law of Moses. Our sins, whatever they may have been, are put as far from us as the east is from the west, nor shall they ever be remembered against us. 
nor is all this all. We are brought into the very family of God and made the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Nor are we children only, but children of full age, who are no longer under tutors and governors, but already admitted to the most intimate communion with our God, and enjoying as far as in this world we can enjoy the inheritance prepared for us. And here we cannot but call your attention in a more special manner to the means by which all these blessings are secured. It is again and again said that they become ours by faith in Christ Jesus. There is no other way. It is simply and solely by faith. There is no mixture of works. Works so far from augmenting our title to these things or contributing to the acquisition of them will, if wrought for this end, cut us off from all hope of ever coming to the possession of them. So inconsistent with each other are the covenants of grace and of works that the smallest portion of works utterly excludes grace and the slightest imaginable dependence on them invalidates all that Christ has done and suffered for us. The instant we blend anything with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we make the promise of no effect and Christ with respect to us has died in vain. It's a good way to end, isn't it? To remind us again of the great importance of justification by faith alone. And Paul is going to argue that, listen, those believing offspring of the covenant has always talked about uh, with Abraham. It's not something brand new anymore. It's actually been the old doctrine, which is everyone who believes is actually part of the offspring of Abraham. And that was the covenant promise given in Genesis 430 years before the law. That's the argument of the Apostle Paul. And uh, therefore, salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone. Well, thank you for listening to this. I hope this has been encouraging to you, helpful. We'll read some more from Charles Simeon next week, uh, Galatians 4, 5, 6. And then we will continue on in our reading through the New Testament. Thank you for listening to this. Hope this has been encouraging. Take care and God bless.